Welcome to the Stonebridge Community Church online worship service. Today you'll hear the Word of God read, the message from this weekend's in-person service, and two songs to guide you in worship. Thanks for joining us today. Well, hello, I'm Pastor John. For those of you that I haven't had a chance to meet yet, or if you're visiting with us, Who said that? Who said that? Oh, I have to say, he said, you look older today. I know what you all are thinking, though. You're looking at my shirt, and you're saying, that shirt looks a little immature. It looks like a shirt somebody in his 30s would wear. I haven't gotten the 40-year-old wardrobe yet. I turned 40 yesterday, for everybody, just so you're wondering. Thank you. Thank you. And for those of you who haven't hit 40 yet, and I know there's, a, there's some of you out there, It's the wildest thing in the world. You wake up when you're 40 and you have the answers. It's all just there. It just appears in your mind. It's it's quite something. So listen closely now. Last week, you didn't need to listen, but this week, you should listen. So during this season, we're in the Gospel of Mark, and we're in the sermon series entitled Truly Natural. And the idea behind the sermon series is that the healings that Jesus does in the gospel of Mark, they reveal to us what the truly natural world is supposed to look like, the world that God intended. It comes from a quote from a theologian named Jürgen Moltmann. Jesus' miracles, they're not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They're the only truly natural thing in an unnatural world is the basic idea. So when we look at Jesus' miracles, We get a glimpse of what the world was supposed to be and what the world will be when Jesus returns. So I'll be reading from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and I invite you to hear the word of God. When Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Stand up and take your mat and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you that this morning you have gathered us together. We thank you that you've brought us here in this place so that we can be taught by your word, taught by your Holy Spirit. Help us to understand how we, as people who claim you as Lord, should respond to this world. Help us to understand how we can respond to the suffering that we see. Guide us in that, Lord. 
Speak to us. We ask this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, for those of you who were here last week, I I left you with this really profound, deep insight that chaos is bad. And this week, I want to offer another deep insight. Suffering is bad. I think sometimes we get used to the suffering that we see in the world. We get used to the pain that we see others experiencing, that we experience sometimes ourselves, and we start thinking that it's natural or it's the way of the world. But it's not. It's bad. And in this story, I think Jesus lifts up for us the appropriate or the natural response to suffering, a response that reflects the world as God wanted it to be, a response born of care. In the story, Jesus obviously performs this healing of this paralyzed person. But to me, what Jesus really lifts up is the response of the people who carried him. I love this story so much, and I love the way it's all set up. There's this paralyzed person who's been struggling and who's been suffering. And if you are paralyzed in the ancient world, there weren't many social services to help you. There wasn't many doctors who could help you. Oftentimes, you were outcast. You were isolated. It was a very difficult life, full of struggle, full of suffering, that a paralyzed person would normally live in the ancient world. And then we're told that Jesus is having this big house party. People are there gathered in this house with him. And it's packed, it's full. In the Gospel of Mark, there's these moments where Jesus is like rock star Jesus, where he has this large crowd, this big following, and this is one of those moments. The place is so packed, it's so full, that when these people are carrying their paralyzed friend to Jesus, they can't get there. I don't know if you've ever done any sort of practice where you try to carry someone. Carrying a person is difficult. You can imagine the burn that they would feel in their forearms from this. And they get all the way there. And the place is packed. They can't bring their friend to Jesus. So what do they do? They don't give up. They don't stop. They climb up on the roof and they start digging through the roof until there's a hole in the roof. And let me just say, I don't know insurance practices in the ancient world, but for that homeowner, God bless you. They dig this hole in the roof and they lower their friend down. And this is where I love the way Mark writes this. Because Mark notes, when Jesus saw their faith, that's when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. That's when Jesus begins the healing. When he makes it clear he's going to heal. When he sees their faith, their faith that brought them to carry their friend all this way to Jesus. That's what Jesus responds to, and that's what what Mark lifts up here. I think that is the appropriate response to the suffering we see in the world, the response of those four friends to carry their friend as far as they need to, to carry this person who has been suffering, who is paralyzed, as far and as long as they need to before Jesus. Sadly, though, I think far too many of us, and all of us can fall into this, without realizing it, without intending to do it, we end up responding more like the scribes respond in this story. 
These scribes hear Jesus say, your sins are forgiven. And they begin this debate, this dialogue that has nothing at all to do with the person who is suffering. They almost ignore the fact that a paralyzed person has been brought before Jesus and that Jesus is in the midst of doing this healing. And they begin this abstract debate. I think that's how many of us respond to the suffering in the world. We try to wrap our minds around it. We try to make sense of it. We get involved in these abstract debates that ignore the people who are actually suffering. I mean, one of the classic ones is trying to figure out the problem of evil. I mean, why does suffering exist in the world? Why does evil exist in the world? There are some times that I think we can point to suffering that is caused by other human beings, and we could say other human beings cause this, but sometimes there are illnesses, such as somebody being paralyzed. That doesn't seem to be caused by any human beings. It feels random. We try to wrap our minds around it. But I think in those moments, we're missing what it is Jesus actually calls us to. And the truth is, we won't ever really understand why exactly suffering happens or why it happens to specific people or how it takes place until that day that we're in glory with God. It's not something you wrap your mind around. It's not something that you just figure out. It's not something that you can give an easy answer to. And if you ever interacted with somebody who is in the midst of suffering, most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, Diving into a long, lengthy debate or dialogue about the philosophical belief in evil or why it's in the world doesn't really help. If you've ever suffered and somebody has done that, oftentimes it can just make you feel a little more isolated and alone and doesn't answer any questions. And I do get it. I think sometimes the suffering of other people, it creates a, a fear inside of us. It creates an uncertainty, a reality that we can be the one who suffers also. And we have difficulty knowing how to actually respond and how to act. But in the midst of all this, the church has a response to suffering. It's not one that provides all the answers. But I think Jesus called the church into being because the church itself is a response to suffering. One theologian reflecting on this, his name is Stanley Hauerwas. He wrote, historically, Christians have not had a solution to the problem of evil. Rather, they have had a community of care that has made it possible for them to absorb the destructive terror of evil that constantly threatens to destroy all human relations. Let me just break that down a little bit because that's a bit wordy of a quote. But the basic idea there is that when it comes to evil, when it comes to suffering, there's this terror that rises up in all of us. And that that actually breaks down human relationships. It makes it harder for us to connect with others. But in the midst of suffering, being connected to others, being cared for by a community, it doesn't alleviate it, but it can help to absorb some of that fear, some of that terror. And it doesn't fix the suffering. It doesn't make it go away, but it can make it a little bit more bearable when other people are there with you. 
And the church itself is a community of care that God established so that for those who are suffering, we can come alongside them and make sure that they know they don't have to be alone, that in the midst of that, they aren't alone. I think in this story, Mark makes sure that we understand this paralyzed person was carried by four of them. And Jesus lifted them up so that we understand that's the response to suffering. To do what we can, to walk alongside somebody, to carry them through a difficult moment as best as we can, to offer to them that they don't have to be alone, and to carry one another through those moments. And let me just say, as I say carry one another here, I want to make very, very clear. I'm speaking metaphorically. Don't literally go and like kidnap somebody and bring them to the church. And also recognize that I'm speaking figuratively, metaphorically. Sometimes somebody who's suffering, they don't want you to try and pick them up. You have to listen. You have to hear where they are. You have to ask them what they actually want, what will actually help them. You can't just assume that you know it. There's some boundaries around all this, so be careful there. But that desire to help someone else, to walk alongside someone else, to carry them, that, I think, is Jesus's response that he lifts up here to suffering. We can't fix it all. We can't solve it all. But we can do whatever it is within our limited power to carry someone to Jesus as best as we can. And this is all very abstract now. But I think there's some very concrete ways, some specific things that you can do to try to carry somebody. Oftentimes, you don't have time, and I get that. We have busy lives. And the truth is, as human beings, I don't think we can care about everything in the world as deeply as we wish we could. It would overwhelm us. You won't be able to function. But even if you don't have time, if you have money, you can give of your money to an organization that has set aside time to walk alongside others who are suffering. I think of Sarah's House now, one of our mission partners, or Samaritan Center, another one of our mission partners, or James Storehouse, another organization that our church works with. You can give your money to those nonprofits and enable others who do have the time to walk with somebody else. But you can also alter your time, restructure your time, and go and volunteer for one of these organizations. Figure out ways in which you could support an organization that is helping them and help them, that is helping others to walk alongside people. These are things I think we can do so that people who are suffering and struggling know that they're not alone in the midst of that. Another thing that I think you can do that is really, really simple is just offer to be present with somebody. We underestimate, I think, the power of just being present. We think we have to have the right words, but the truth is, in the midst of deep suffering, you're never going to have the right words. One of the things that we as pastors do in our preparation and training in the Presbyterian tradition is we do a hospital chaplaincy. You spend a few months, up to a year, working in a hospital, being present with people who are suffering. It's difficult and it's challenging. And you come across people that they know that their time is limited. They know that they're dying. And in those moments, 
No amount of words are going to change that reality, are going to alter that. Our words can't change what is happening. But what you learn from it is that just sitting there, just being present, it helps to carry somebody through some very difficult moments. It gives them a release, a break from the moments that they're experiencing that oftentimes can be terrifying. Just being present can help somebody. And a last way that I want to offer here, and this to me might be the most important, is prayer. We can pray for others. And I have to just confess to all of you, I personally do have a, a conflicted relationship with prayer. I pray. I pray regularly. But I often don't see the results I want to see from prayer. And I wonder, why am I praying? And people have given different answers to why we should pray. I don't find, why should we, we should pray. I don't find any of them completely satisfying. I'll just be honest with you. If you're talking about effects, if you're talking about results, I don't think those answers are going to be too satisfying. But I think the best reason for why we should pray, to me, it's fairly simple. Because the people in the Bible pray constantly. They talk to God constantly. The people who are in relationship with God, what they model for us in Scripture is that they interact with God constantly. They pray when they're joyful. They pray when they're angry. They pray when they're sad and grieving. They pray when they're facing a decision. They go to God constantly. And I don't know what the actual results are, and I think it varies, and I think it's different. Our prayers don't control God. So I'm in this tricky thing of telling you that when you see somebody who's suffering, pray for them, but also know your prayers might not yield the result that you want. But that doesn't mean you stop praying. You continue to pray. Simply because when you're in relationship with God, it's what you do. And I love the way that prayer is modeled in the Bible. There's no one way. There's no one set, clear example. There's the Lord's Prayer as a guide, but then there's other examples as well. And some of my favorite times that I see people praying in the Bible is when they're arguing with God. They pray in a way where they're almost trying to persuade God of their case. That's, I think, how we should pray. Knowing that oftentimes we're going to lose the argument, God still knows best. And knowing that ultimately our prayers will be answered when Jesus returns. That when you're praying for somebody who's suffering, somebody who's struggling, in that moment when Jesus returns, this world will be made right. The healing that we see glimpses of in these miracles and healings in the Gospel of Mark, that will be how the world looks. It's not on our time frame, but it will happen. So we continue to pray. We pray without ceasing. And over these next few weeks, on Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. And I invite you to our Ash Wednesday service as well. It's at 7 o'clock here in this room. During this season, Ash Wednesday begins a season called Lent. During this season, we're going to be setting aside time in our worship services to pray for specific types of healing that this world needs, to pray for people who are in need of healing. And I invite you to not just do it when we're here in these worship services, but to pray constantly for this world, for healing. Because I think that 
is one of the ways that we can carry others to Jesus. These four friends carried this paralyzed person all the way to Jesus to the point that they dug through somebody else's roof and lowered him down so that he would be healed. In the face of the suffering in this world, may we do what we can to model that same response, to model the response that Jesus lifts up for us, recognizing that that's also the way Jesus responds himself to us. Being willing to do anything, including going to a cross, dying, experiencing death, overcoming death, and being resurrected so that we might have hope and that we might have healing when he returns. May we go and do likewise. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you give us these glimpses of healing and that you show us how this world is supposed to look. And we thank you that in these four people who carried this paralyzed person all that way, we get a glimpse of the care that reflects your hope for the world. We get a glimpse of how we can care for others, how we should desire to care for others. Wait.